Hi there, welcome to the More Civil Podcast. This is a podcast for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them. I am Mo, and I am your host, ready to spark your curiosity as I take you on this adventurous ride of exploring cultures through the stories of my guests from all over the world. On this show, we get really personal, discussing salient issues that are relevant to our contemporary age and also building community around them as our guests exercise courage and vulnerability in sharing their life's experiences we hope that in turn you are inspired by them and that you get the courage needed to set your own stories free enjoy the ride and thank you so much for listening This is Mo, and today I have a very special edition with two wonderful people. Um, first, we have T Dog. T Dog, he's no stranger to the show, but this is um, Dr. Ibuku Oluwa Money Pumping Shonike. He's a pediatrician. Amen. <laughs> Pediatric intensivist. Yes, American. yes. Ah, this guy is, what do you say, Igiwe? Like the fourth thing, the tree of knowledge. Yeah, he's also, he's been friends, well, I've been friends with him, I think I knew him more in med school. Did you guys talk in med school? Uh, on the school level. At school level. So, we're all, shout out to our CFG peeps, uh, Christian Fellowship Group. Anyways, um, Ibuko and Taiwo ended up meeting here again at um, the other school, Texas C&M. Yeah. Ha uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, so, Texas is history. And we've kind of kept in touch. Ibuko is somebody that, you know, when we talk, I just laugh, like, he makes me laugh like crazy. Um... He has a serious look on his face, but do not, do not be fooled by this. It's packaging. It's packaging. <laughs> do not be fooled by this cartoon as well. Um, I guess let me let you introduce yourself, and then he can introduce himself. Well, I don't think I need any introduction anymore. You guys know me by now. Um, Taiwan Edeka. Um, fortunate and lucky to be married to this uh, beautiful damsel. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah. And Ibuku, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on the show, means a lot. Uh, you always But you have to pay me though. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm here because I was told of some uh, financial... Uh, so my name is Ibuku <laughs> Most of my friends call me IBK. Uh, yeah, I think that's... The, and I've been friends with um, Taiwan and Tolani for a few years now back in med school. Yeah. And we've just, you know, like Tolani said, kind of kept in touch. Uh, and you know, just nice to be spending some time with them during this brief period. Yeah. Yeah, is a very good friend, and um, he's visiting here from Seattle. And I thought, why not just kill two birds with one stone? We were going to introduce ourselves, and so the two commonalities, or the commonality between the two, is that they are physicians here. Tawo currently works as a hospitalist. He did his family and um, his residency in family medicine. And Ibukun, you know, um, they also have a master's degree in public health. Even though I know this one has not been used. <laughs> it hasn't used his degree one time. Yeah, so I'm, it an MBA. I'm telling you. Yeah, I think an MBA would have served me better, but anyway. So I know why you went into medicine. Your personal story, at least the one that you put on your application was your mom was ill and you lost her back to health. What drove your decision to study medicine? Was it that whole thing of... Niger, you know, mom, like, or dad, you have to go uh, through I, I think 
I think for me, one of my uncles on my dad's side, like kind of when I was very, very little, I kind of admired him and he was a doctor. So I, I think that's that's probably one of the first memories I had of wanting to become a doctor. And coming from Nigeria, there are probably major courses your your family will always encourage you to study engineering, medicine, law, you know, the major big courses mm -hmm. that they should, you know, serve you some security um, down the road. And I was quite, I, I, and during secondary school, I kind of was really, really, really good in biology. So, you know, I think you just, all that together, there was, there was no one factor, big, one yeah. big factor. Mm -hmm. I've always liked to help people for sure, but I guess you could do that in other fields as well. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, nothing, I wouldn't say I had this one inspiring moment per se. So another thing is that both of you have practiced in Nigeria, you also practice here. And knowing what I know about the system, there tends to be like a disconnection between reality and expectations. Especially when you have to deal with like um, quality controls, admin, insurance. What would you say has just been a big difference between practicing in Nigeria and practicing here? Let's start with T-Dog first. You know, uh, I guess for my little stints, you know, present, um, working in Nigeria, you know, during my uh, uh, internship, which, which spanned a period of um, a year. And then I think I worked for about a year and a half in the private setting. Uh, I would say from my experiences, I think the main frustration was Scott Walk, you know, which, you know, I didn't really have to deal with. I didn't really have to deal with, but probably Ibukun will be able to tell you some more. But I know that's very common in uh, New York programs, uh, where I think some of them kind of do scott work, like do blood draws and stuff like uh, that. That's not really related to, you know, medicine. But anyway, um, that was the norm in Nigeria when I did my house job and also, you know, as a medical officer at the private hospital. And then other major things was uh, um, where the fact that in insurance wasn't like a big deal then. It was pretty much pay out of pocket. So I even that model, right? Yeah. Even it says a lot about healthcare system. Yeah. If the majority of population is paying out of pocket. Yeah, it was pretty frustrating. Like I remember, and I'm sorry, Bukun will also attest to this. Like even during my med school days, during my clinical rotations, you know, at the accident and emergency, you know, we would have people coming in with you know, like major road traffic accidents, like lacerations, you know, even medical issues, you know. And uh, the first thing they'll tell you to do, <laughs> it's just trying to stabilize the patient first, you know, it's like, okay, go get the cards, go pay this, go buy all this supplies and stuff like that, you know. And most times people just lay down there and, you know, eventually die, yeah, yeah. you know. That was really, really frustrating for me, you know. Uh, but I think one of the main differences here in the U.S. is that you know they take care of you first, they address the emergency, and then they can you can get a pretty hefty bill later yeah. on, but they will save your life. Yeah, generations <laughs> have to keep paying small for small for it. Yeah. Um, there's gonna be a prize at the end of this episode. Anyone that can tell us how many times um this is the word, you know, you know, you know, the toast toastmaster time is like you know, how many you knows you have to put in the centers, you know. All right, we'll come. Okay, so um, I guess I guess Taiwan has already touched on some of the glaring differences. Uh, of course, the healthcare system, the way it's organized in itself, is probably a big um, 
a big, you know, a source of frustration. And, you know, if not either of you, at least in my family, and I know in so many families, they've had stories where um, a family member or a loved one has had adverse outcomes, not because they did not present early enough, but be before mobilization of the health services due to finance or even things don't work. Sometimes you even have the money and there's no electricity or there's no blood. Now, I remember when my cousin was born and we thought we had to do exchange transfusion because our billy was quite high. And a could, yeah, Billy yeah, Rubin, sorry. Yeah, Billy Rubin was quite high. And you know, that can affect the brain, especially in the early neonatal period. So, uh, and yeah, it causes connectors, which is a. Um, so basically, we looked for blood. There was no blood at the hospital. We had to go outside to source at the primary center. It was just. And this was Lagos. Yeah, this was Lagos. Imagine we were in the, in the hinterland of Nigeria. Hinterland, exactly. So, and it was, and I was a doctor working in that hospital. So you can imagine. You, now, they even got that special treatment already. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say special treatment, but at least I knew where to go, I knew who to go. Yeah, special treatment. Yeah. I make people know exactly know all these things. So, imagine someone that is probably not um, not that. Um, yeah, most savvy. people, yeah, mm -hmm. most people who are not. I mean, naive, if you didn't yeah. study yeah. medicine, pharmacy, nothing. Yeah, really, naive, yeah, yeah, yeah. You really don't understand the system as much. So I can understand how confused, frustrated, how, how lost they would feel. Mm -hmm. You know with those kind of issues. So, I mean, the Nigerian story is a, is a complicated no, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in terms of Scott work, I think I'll probably, and because, you know, myself and Tyro, we have different parts yeah. or specialties. I think I'm actually appreciative that I was able to do, at least in terms of IVs, procedures and all of that, because, you know, being, uh, working in the ICU, just, you know, a lot of things, you have to place in central lines. Um, you have to do bedside ultrasounds. You have to intubate patients. So, and sometimes, and, and yes, you know, at, at the hospital where I currently work, it's not like, for central lines, you do them. But for an IV, someone else might come to do them, and if they don't get it, you still have to manage the patient. So it's good you have those skills. Yeah. Yeah, so, but that's just different because we're in different fields okay. in medicine. Yeah, but yeah, things work. You know, I remember the first day I started residency, and we sent a lab. And within 15 minutes, my senior was asking me if the result was out. I was like, why would the result be out in 15 minutes? <laughs> yeah. But it can be possible. No, no, no. It, it, it does come out yeah. even sometimes, even yeah, less so. Yeah, especially if you put a start on that. Even less. But, you know, then in Nigeria... Oh my I God. think the problem we have in Nigeria, really, and myself and a friend were trying to work on this, is our lack of centralized you know, system. They don't communicate with each other. The patient has that onus of carrying their backpack of knowledge from one doctor to another doctor. And even here, some, sometimes systems might not communicate with each other, but at least within the hospital, you can have everything you need. You don't have to like go to Yaba to go and do scan, go to Jolegba to go and do ultrasound, you know? So that's also the problem. And if you lose all of those, whatever, and who, who comes up with these results? I mean, I, I feel like every, you could pick, you could pick a problem and really go to into depth, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I, yeah, so yeah. I'll probably try not to talk about Nigeria tomorrow. I'm not sure that's the scope of... That's okay. I mean, yeah. we are Nigerians and I know that from for many of us, being here was not something that we wanted, you know, to come consciously, but because we wanted to seek, you know, greener pastures, mm -hmm. but it's still our country and yeah, yeah. the hope is that it gets better someday. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if it was done talking. I was going to say also, you know, that here in the States, right, I've you get frustrated, you know, and I don't know if, you know, Ibukun experiences that as well. 
in terms of readmissions. You know, there are lots of social and behavioral determinants of health that kind of affects our patient population. Look at, look at, look at how you um, just there are lots of that public health because I just that I wasn't using his MPH degree. All of a sudden, no, you just slid that, you know, social and what did you call it again? Behavioral de determinants of health. <laughs> Like these are things that are real. It's too dark for the first year. Yeah, <laughs> and these are real yeah. issues. You know, you yeah. see patients coming in. You know, I can tell you. You know, based on their um, socioeconomic background, you know, some of them are unemployed or maybe they are underemployed. They can't afford. They can't afford insurance. Yeah. You know, I just took care of a patient, and you know, I had to discharge the patient. But then, guess what? The patient came back to the hospital like five days, yeah. you know, because no health insurance, no, no access to follow-up, follow yeah. you know, so you get frustrated too, here. Now, so. another question I'd like to ask both of you as a non-medical person here is, I've noticed this with a lot of my doctor people, I just not to say they're not nice people, I mean, for, for me to call you a friend, it has to be nice, so, but as a point you guys get to that, you almost start, you lose your I don't know how to say it. You're used to seeing death and macabre and you know, gruesome scenes. And then the way you talk about people die, almost as if, oh, you know, a fly just slammed themselves on the window and then, like, at what point does it not get scary? Is it that there's something about the way you guys practice that you start losing that, um, that sense of death? And I think we had that conversation, was it yesterday? Yeah, we had a conversation. Two kinds of patients that you talked about, you know. Why do you think it gets to that point where it feels like you guys don't, I don't know, I don't know how to call it. It's not being callous, but you guys just get very this What's the word I'm looking for? Desensitized. Desensitized. God bless you. Yeah. And that's scary sometimes because I know you guys are very core of it. You do care. You actually care more about the disease than the people sometimes behind the disease. Well, I'll tell you this. I don't believe that every well, there might be a few doctors that do not that have lost their sense of humanity. Okay, they are in it just to make money. Okay, and uh, I would say that I think as physicians, you know, we need to get to that point where we where we take ourselves like you try, you try not to be emotionally involved in your the doctor patient relationship and. It's it's a it's a it's a difficult balance, really. You, you, you want to try and connect with the patients, gain trust, establish that relationship, so you can things can go well. But at the same time, you don't want to get too emotionally involved. I've seen doctors. I mean, during my training, you know, I'm working at night with one of my female seniors, and she went in with a dying family, and you know, she cried with them, you know, told them that, you know, it's better to make the patient comfort measures. You know, she cried with them, she showed her humanity. Have you cried with the patient before? I have not, but That's that doesn't mean, the fact that I've not cried does not mean anyway, that I don't cry, feel, it, it doesn't mean that I do not feel for the family and stuff. Do you cry later on in your closet, like when you're brushing your teeth off? Like, what up, like I just think about it, I reflect about it, I feel sad, but then the fact that I, I think I, I did my best for the patient yeah. makes me feel at ease and I try not to think about that too much, otherwise I'm going to get depressed and, you know, yeah. So, so you, you try to just remove yourself from that situation because if you see death and all that going on every day, you know, it's just not normal. Then, then people, physicians commit, lots of physicians commit suicide for a whole lot of other yeah, reasons, but, but I'm sure if people, most of those who might actually like 
get those things into their head, like they're connecting too much, I think, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you see that every day, and then if you have that tendency to become depressed, you can end up committing suicide yourself. So, it, yeah, it's hard. So I was some days ago when you lost that patient that you didn't like, I know you needed a hug, so I gave you a hug. Because you were really sad. I could tell that on your face, like you were yeah, really I mean, sad. Yeah, I mean, like I said... Like, if you just cried, maybe I felt a lot better. No, I didn't need to have pride. Like, I had a patient that we established that relationship. You know, he told me to hold his hands. You know, I held his hands. His family was there. You know, and they were like, he's telling you to hold his hand. You know, yeah. and that moment where you do that, you connect with that patient, you reassure them. You, you hold your patient's hand. I already asked you to do, to do that now as a pediatrician, right? Uh, not by default. No, but there's a lot of hand holding. If you have to hold them to like maybe maybe draw a line or that's different. Yeah. That's different. No, there's still, doing a I'm, not, I'm just trying to relate. Like there's still hand holding. There's still a bit of contact. You have more. You probably have more contact with your patients as physical contact compared to Taiwan's patients. He's dealing with parents, I know. parents and, and children. Kids. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you you have like probably more contact. If it's long your contact hours, I promise you have more of that. Would you say? By virtue of the volume of contact you have, does that make you think you you don't belong in this category of of, of um, practitioners that are kind of like getting a little bit? No, I, I I think I think I think it, this thing is very 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 multifaceted, and in a sense, it makes doctors look like a different breed. But you know, if I were to compare it to something more mainstream, maybe they're not that different after all. For instance, now, okay, okay, for instance, now with all the um, the issues with um, police shootings and black people um, in the U.S. currently, we don't necessarily talk about them and we are sad in the moment. It's, you know, it's always contextualized. I think the thing with doctors is that a lot of times when we are discussing these patients, we are discussing them because of the medicine. You know, we are usually discussing them because of the medicine. Like, you know, like I think two nights ago, I think in that sense, I was more, I was more, I was, when this discussion started, I think the main thrust was, okay, what actually happened to the patient? What was the pathophysiology? Do you get so we're not really talking about it's the medicine we are really talking about at that, at that at that point yeah. in time. So I mean you have to talk about the medicine sometimes. Then there are also periods where it's the person. And in those periods, you know, I think I'm usually more emotional when I put myself in family's shoes. I can't imagine what the child, you know, to be at that age and to already be dealing with issues this this deep, or the parents, they are losing a son, they are losing a daughter, you know, it's so difficult. Sometimes, you know, it, it's end stage, it's terminal, there's no solution, they're just in pain. It's, it's, it's somewhat okay that, you know, they're allowed to just let go and go rest, but at the same time, it's still heartbreaking that they have to go through it in the first instance. So it's, it's very, it's very. Um, it's not one. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it just depends on, you know, whenever you see a doctor discussing the patient, it depends on the reason he's discussing this patient. Is he discussing it because he wants to share, oh, you know, that you know we had similar patients, but we did this differently, and you know this patient did better, or oh, I didn't even really understand what was going on with that patient. You get, it's a different discussion from. Wow, you know, this girl passed, the family was distraught. I felt very bad. You know, that those are two separate discussions. Yeah. And even and having said that, there's burnout. I think we have one of the highest rates of 
Uh, Absolutely. Because um, I didn't know the patient, but also with the families. The families, yeah. There's, we have one of the highest rates of, um, I think, professional. Burnout. And suicide. Suicides. You know, a lot of people are with debts, a lot of people. We are, probably, we, are, we are probably not in that category, like medical school debts. Okay. There's all financial pressure. You know, if you are inviting to make the money, I don't know if it's worth it. So, I don't know, and you, you, you also need a healthy distance. You know, I, I don't think you want me flying your plane if I was afraid of heights. Do you get it? Yeah. If I was that, you know, like. You know, sometimes uh, you're in the plane and there's this reverberation and you're just holding off for their life. And you see one of these um, hostesses and they're just, hey, what, what? <laughs> Do you get So you, you need a, you need a certain level of professional distance to yeah. objectively do the non-human aspects of the job. I get, I get that part. Yeah. My own problem is that the distance becomes so much that you guys focus more on diseases and you don't let yourself feel with the patients. Because I've had some doctors like that, it feels like they don't even see me as a patient. It's about your condition. They don't think about the person behind the condition. I mean, if, 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 if you had to have, if, if, if you had to pick one, I think it's always good and important that a doctor cares and shows the human aspect of the profession. But I mean, if you had to pick one, a doctor that was too involved or a doctor that was distant, you want one that his mind was clear yeah. and he was just focusing on medicine yeah. than one that is so afraid he's going to make a mistake and he eventually either does make a mistake or doesn't do anything. Okay. So in a sense, you know, not every doctor is going to be able to show that human aspect as we are even all different, even if you are not a doctor. But yeah. I think it's 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 different from if a doctor is being callous, careless, uncaring, That's like true. more, you know, more obvious bad behavior or yeah. bad professionalism. Yeah, That's bad different. Yeah, bad person. But I think for me, the patients have, I, I think I've felt bad about all patients going through, um, going through uh, like difficult circumstances of, or have poor prognosis. I've always, always felt bad. But I've felt bad to different degrees because sometimes you don't even have time to feel bad. You are going on to the next patient. So you don't right. even have time to process that. Right. You have to go into the mental framework of this is a different patient. We are going to discharge them this afternoon. And you're also happy for that family. Right. Then you go on to the next patient and you really don't know what you are doing. So there's a lot of this emotional scatter. I like how you put it there. Right. Yeah. It's just too much bipolar. Bipo- yeah. So there, are like- some, there are families that you are so happy. They are, you know, you thought this patient was going to die. They are jumping up and down. And, oh, you are, and you are happy. Then you go to the next one and, and you know, just before you enter the room, you say a little prayer and hopefully you can make them feel a, a little bit better that they, you know, say something that would improve. And maybe the, that patient might. So it's, it's just, it's not just one patient, it's just all, all over the place. Yeah, so it's, I think it's, it's quite, I think it's, it's a day by day. I don't even know how, how we do it sometimes. It's just yeah. like a day by day. And going off what you said, you know, I just remembered, you know, this last couple of, weeks that I've, you know, worked, I know how many patients have passed and, you know, me having to talk to the family that it was okay to, you know, make them rest comfortably and to, you know, make them comfortable, pretty much let them go, you know, off the ventilator and stuff like that. You know, I could feel and empathize with them and, and they could see that you care, you know, so I, I guess it, it just comes down to your bedside manner and the patient appreciating that you did all that you could for them. And also, just what, like uh, Ibukun had said, 
you have to not be too emotional because if you get into that phase, yeah. you might not be able to clearly make decisions to take care of that patient. You know, like the patient I lost recently, yeah. were in the room, we kept calm, we were doing what we needed to do, family was outside. Now imagine we're frantic, we're like, oh, oh my God, my patient, oh, he's dying, oh no, no. You know, would you want that kind of doctor taking care of your loved yeah, one? You, if no. you're not careful, you become a liability. Yeah. Exactly. The, the patients that have affected me the most are patients who were, um, at the time of admission, you can still see the vigor and health in them. And they have these long stays, and you see them gradually deteriorate. deteriorate. And I mean, a good number of them still end up recovering, and everything is good. But, that, but there are some, face, right? yeah. But there are some that, so you know, it's like you see. I, you know, I, I think I've actually had to go into the restaurant to cry about two or three times, and not because, and not because I didn't feel bad for other patients, but. That's sometimes it's just, and sometimes it's not just that patient. Maybe it's just piling up, piling up from other uh, patients. Then. That day is an overflow. When do you ever, ever release your sting? You seem so even. I'm really worried about people like you. Now that the going to shoot up five places, how no. do you? How are you so I calm think, about things? I think like, I think it's the way. I think it's the way I was made. I'm your training. God owner. created me that way if to be evenly evenly keen. Yeah, I think I think that's my. I'm just lucky. Yeah. I think we have a couple of questions. But I do feel bad though. Like I, I told you about that. it. I, I told like I don't doubt you. my when colleague at work. Home. I took told like three nurses. Like when that was my home. way of dealing when with it. Usually I won't, I won't let you touch when you come back from work. You have to go wash your hands. I gave you all because I could. I said I you said could tell. You needed. And you were I didn't need to cry. That was your. That was for me. Was your way of crying without expressing tears because I know you don't cry easily, which is also another thing we can talk about all the time. Um, a couple of questions from around us so being. Quickly, you guys have talked about you know some of the traits that I needed to be like a, a good doctor, like maintain their professional distance. Now, as far as your field is specific, specific field, what would you say are some of the traits you would need to be able to thrive as a hospitalist or a primary care physician? To thrive? Yeah, to do your job very well. Okay. Number one, have a good personality. <laughs> You know, work well with staff, with nurses. Nurses, yeah. nurses can make or mar you. <laughs> I've learned from experience. And even that was something that we learned, you know, in Nigeria when we were training. Yeah, yeah the nurses can make or mar you. Shout out to the nurses. You guys rule the world. You guys, the yeah, you guys do all the, the work. Yeah. I, I appreciate you guys. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, be nice to your colleagues, both medical and non-medical staff. Um, have a great bedside manner, you know, come to the level of the patients. I just learned this recently. You know, weren't trained like this, but I learned but on the job. It's changed a lot like where you... now that are wearing masks, patients can't really read your lips. So to be able to have them see you, not like almost like closer to them, you're more than compensating because of the use of masks. Yeah, yeah, I'm having to like squat down, or, you know, squat to the level of the patient. So it's not like you're towering over them, you know, things like that. Yeah, and always... Like asking them if they have any questions, concerns, like over and over again. Okay. You know, it's just like PR, customer satisfaction. We are graded by that too. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's also different though because this is in medicine. There's already that hierarchy between the patient and the doctor, right? There's always that distance. Mm -hmm. And how do you not erode it, but at least make the patient feel like, hey, hey I'm here to like you know help you get to where you need to be. Yeah, and, and lastly, I'll just say. 
you know, it's a stressful job, lots of patients, lots of hours. I try to do something, like once I'm off, I, I just try to decompress by yeah. playing play tennis play or games, whatever. Tennis on Tuesdays, massage once a month, and then sometimes, you know, his wife will hug him. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, you will go have one. Uh, I think I think mine is going to be a bit um, a bit colored by what phase of my career I'm currently at because I'm currently still I'm currently still training. So I would say the the two things would be first at, at least for an ICU ICU training is um, perseverance, and there, there's something I tell myself during the week at different points in time is. Um, uh, success is the ability to move from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Ooh. And that, I think that's from Winston Churchill. That, guys. That's from Winston Churchill. So, you know, because it's, it's quite a difficult field. There are times you feel like you don't know what you're doing. There are times you feel better. Patients are pretty sick. You keep going day after day, um, hour after hour. So, you know, just to keep that enthusiasm. Uh, I mean, to try and learn from your mistakes, but to go at, go at it again. So that's for the technical aspects. And just being like Tyro said, being human, not just to nurses, to everyone. Patients, parents, nurses, medical students, residents, your co-fellows. Just be, be someone people are happy to have around, you know. I think that's where I'll put it. Just be, you know, try and be your best self, you know, put your best foot forward. I think another thing I would like to talk about as, you know, as someone married to someone that is a medical doctor is so that you don't feel like you're enjoying your spouse as best as you you can. So holidays are not always guaranteed. Um, you have to like schedule almost your life and emotions around their, their, their monthly schedule. And that can be quite difficult. That has also protected some tension in our marriage. Um, yeah, the money is good, but then you know that if you need to do something, you have to go and check that, that master calendar that he's always sending. And luckily for me, well, not luckily, but I'm glad I have access to his schedule now that can like see, oh, okay, this day is off. He's off on this day. I guess, um, what are some of the, how, do you guys feel about, what do you think about what I just said about, you know, do you sometimes feel like you're missing out on life with your family because of your work? I know for you, it's, it's almost applicable because you're almost, you know, married soon so but I'm curious to know what goes on through your mind do you feel somehow like you know you're not always there with your family because of your work yeah absolutely you know um I do feel that way like sometimes I wish that I could you know get all the holidays like you know primary care doctors in their offices get you know fourth of July Easter Christmas Thanksgiving, have all those holidays off and just spend it with your family. Of course, I feel that way. But um, I mean, for hospitalists, um, I think they try to make things even by, you know, you work maybe Thanksgiving and then you're off Christmas. So at least you're not missing out on boats, you know, things like that. So yeah, I, I feel like sometimes I wish I could get it all, but you can't get it all. You have to compromise some, somewhat. How about you? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons I, you know, usually wonder if it was the right choice to come into medicine, <laughs> just on the low days, um, especially when you're just walking back to back from from working all weekend into it all day. Then yeah, you know, working all week at the same time. Um, and you do night calls, right? Sometimes. Yeah, definitely. I still do nights, um, uh, and that's going to be the same for the foreseeable future. 
I think the way and you know because I'm probably not yet married, I, the friction isn't as bad because I stay alone currently. Yeah, it's you know it's you know it's something that I'll probably have to learn how to manage going forward once I have a family and I have children. Having to explain why you know I'll be absent for so so and so. Probably your children, your children would even have milestones at school you that you might have to miss and all of that. So it's something definitely to think about. But at the same time, it's also, it's also, you know, sometimes on like a Christmas day, for instance, now you're in the hospital and you're taking care of a patient. I mean, you know, going, you know, sometimes I think it's also a privilege to be there for these patients on these days. It's always, always a privilege, you know, at least you are healthy, although you have to come into work, but rather be doing that than to be on the bed somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So it's still, it's still, maybe that's like the silver lining or, you know, of, it's, that's probably a silver lining way of looking at it. But it's, I think it's a big privilege to, to be there for those people. And, so, you know, sometimes not everyone has family by the bedside. So sometimes we get to celebrate with them. I rather be with my family, but since I can't be with my family, yeah. we get to celebrate with them. So it's it's not all bad. Um, yeah. Just you know, just a different way of thinking about it. Maybe it makes me feel a bit better. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, being married to someone that I think understanding. Yeah. Sometimes it's sad because Christmas they come late when they almost had the dinner. They come back from work. They, almost like they are missing out on so many things, but this is a life they've been called to live, and you know, and yeah, it has its privileges. I'm not gonna lie, but it's sometimes difficult. Sometimes it feels very lonely, um, and so just I think understanding. And sometimes, like when he has like take like extra shifts, he lets me know, like, hey, babe, can you check this date before I say yes to this other you know opportunity? So I think just having that united front as a couple to know you know what you can what you can take and what you cannot take but the job is difficult it's really really difficult um finally before we go and I, I think it would be bad of us we didn't even talk about this in very few words is your path towards residency and i say that because we know some of our friends are still trying to get into residency and um, we finally you know get that match match was um last month which is also march but they call it match day you match into a program and I know you, you know, you had, you got into residency finally after your, on the third attempt, right? Did you have to wait a while? You were like, you got in the first time, right? Yeah, I got in the first time. <laughs> you got the pre-match. So what are some of the, um, yeah, you got a pre-match. Yeah, if yeah. you were, what are some of the tips you might give those that are trying to, you know, make it to, finally to, to match? Even though you didn't really hustle like that, but what was your game plan? Yeah, so... So I, I mean, not be the best person to give advice, but my mental model was I kind of and this is a model I've learned even past residency to apply for fellowship and everything. So when I when I got my step one score and I evaluated it, it was an okay score, probably average, maybe above average a bit. Then I evaluated it and I was quite very good in some areas. But because I was weak in other areas, it didn't matter. Do you get? You can be the best person in biochemistry if you suck at anatomy. You're still your score is still going to be dragged down. So when I was preparing for my step two, my 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 technical strategy was not to keep studying the strong areas, but to try and strengthen the weak areas. And I think that's and and my step two score was much 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 better. And I think that has just been my strategy for life going forward. In the sense that 
applying for residency, you want to be, if you've not taken your exams, you want to make sure your scores are as high as they can be. If you already have your scores, then you're past that. You want to make sure you get very good letters of recommendation. Um, you want to make sure your personal statement is on point. You want to make sure the picture you put up in your profile is on point. You want to make sure you network aggressively. Like, you you know, we are, for most of us internationals, our names, we are not going to be the, you know, top of the, top picks so in any way. So you want to make sure you network aggressively. And once you get your interviews, you, you want to make sure you prepare for these interviews like this is the job of your life. Uh-huh. You get, so I think I've just taken that you need to be strong. You need to be as strong as possible everywhere. You're so only that, as strong as your weakest area. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you're only, yeah, sometimes you're only as strong as your weakest area. And I think that has served me well going forward. And it's not like I'm strong everywhere, but at least, at least for the job I'm currently doing, I already know I have like weak spots. And I already start thinking of strategies to improve those areas because you know it's just like a strategy I keep using. And I think that's, I think that's what worked. I may be wrong, but I think that's what worked for me during residency. I called everyone. Not everybody was nice to me, but I kept calling. I think you are witness. I got numbers from Taiwo. Called people. Worked my personal statement. You know, I worked my letter of recommendation. I got the scores I could. You know, considering the circumstances. And when it was time to interview, I I prepared for interview like it was a major exam. And you know, I liked the way I sounded during my interviews and I believed like I was a good candidate during the interviews. And you know, I was quite confident, not com- I mean it's it's never real until the results come out. <laughs> but I think I was fairly confident that I could I would have matched. But once I got the pre-match and I compared the programs and they weren't that different, I just like didn't get them out. So and um, yeah. I think that's that strategy about improving on yourself. I think it's one, one something we can actually take, you know, um, in improving our life processes. We we do have that insight to see where we're weaker, but I think a lot of us just turn it off and then we focus on our strength and we keep you know playing that to power. But like you know, I believe that you only are strong as a weaker spot. So improvement, guys, and it's very continuous. It's the same way you can apply it to other areas of your life, not just, you know, your practice or your process. Yeah, I 100% agree with everything IDK has said. If you've not taken your boards, shoot to score the highest possible score you can get. Networking is key. Like, as a foreign trained doctor, sometimes you you might not even get um, your application reviewed, especially if you're like an old graduate. So, yeah, networking, getting them to even review your, your um, credentials and stuff like that. And then, um, what else? The interview. Yes, you can never, never overstretch or overstress that. I, I remember the first, I, I interviewed the first time. I mean, I got interviewed all the three times I, I applied to residency. But after the second try i had seven interviews that time and i didn't match i was so disappointed and then i spoke with someone um i remember then i probably should reach out to her again it's been a taiwo yeah. yes she's my name yeah taiwo i remember that call was on sunday she was based out in houston she was like she read through my cv and she was like what why have you not matched like your cv is awesome you know like what are you what are you doing like what are you not doing right you know like that totally opened my 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 
brain i'm like okay unlocks different channels i'm like oh my god so i'm really this good someone can see so i really look good to someone (laughs) you know yeah so i had to like okay i i became my strongest critic oh my god i still carry that till today like i'm my strongest critic i try i don't compare myself to other people you know i try to just like pretty much um it's constant what ibukun has said you know locating your weak areas and working on those i yeah so anyway i worked on that when i interviewed the third time i knew i was gonna match i i was cautiously optimistic <laughs> of course you, you can never be so sure yeah i remember that drive i went to him and i remember that drive i saw something had changed in him i looked at him and i was like i'm proud of you whether you match or not i'm super proud of you because you could tell that this was somebody that you know something came alive in him like he he was just you're a different beast playing that game. Yeah, and I, like the other program I, I was going to match in pediatrics in New York, they sent me an email yeah, <laughs> after I like, matched. Why didn't you? They're like, you know, why didn't you? What, can you tell us why you did not want to come here? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I think oh, you wow. You actually got no, a, no, no, it wasn't like a pre, almost like a central email beforehand. Right. Which was unusual because it's never got in that kind of email. Almost saying that we're looking forward to having you. Right. You know? Right, so that was a good experience. I realized that, you know, never look down on yourself, you know, build back that image, even though you've been cast down, you know, do not give up, yeah. don't give up. Anyway. I think a lot of mistake um, that as an observer, you guys can call me out on it is, as foreign trained grads, you need to be very aggressive about your networking. Because you didn't finish school from here, you don't have that social network. You need to buy into it. Um, go for conferences, have people like, open doors for you because once you match once you enter residency that's it you're almost you know you might not get to that level as far as someone that went here but at least you're not going to be doing you know bad so be very aggressive no matter what your personality is i mean that was not super outgoing but um it had sorry i said um but it had this tenacious ability to disturb people and block people until he got what he wanted. I remember that A4 paper that you stopped by the door. Yeah, I wrote down a list of like 30 something programs where I had contacts. I was always following up with everybody, writing, checking, (laughs) applied and yeah. And when people said, don't worry, call us clinical clinic. See, and I end of the day, not forget the place of, you know, prayers and of course, you know, God. At the end of the day, I think it's too bothered as a favor. I don't know if you had any. I think, yeah, I think that covers most of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was, it felt like, when we were in that process, it felt like many years ago. And it also felt like it was never going to end. Like the whole disappointment, one time in, in, in March, you look at the results, but unfortunately, sorry, it didn't match, it didn't match. And then one time it happened. And those days, it just, they don't even seem like, you know, even though they were really difficult times. So just want to encourage those that are still in that process, don't give up. Keep your networking game strong, reach out to people, have people read your, through your CV, your personal statements, practice your mock interview skills, and learn to speak up for yourself. One of the things they noticed about Thai was that when they had like those group presentations, even though you knew the answer, I would let the women go first and have them answer a question. It wasn't being aggressive, <laughs> you know. So anyways, um, oh, yeah, at my the yeah. the Harlem program. Yeah. Oh yeah, I actually spoke up that the end. Everybody just looked back to yeah. <laughs> like, who is that person? Yeah, he did the answer, but you know, modest guy now, like, let him in. And you know, group interviews, I just looking at the, you know, the ones that talk first. Me, I don't have a problem with that area. My own problem is just keeping quiet when I know the answer, because I always want to talk. Anyways, um, I think the next time we're going to talk about men and relationships, we have to cut it short now because, you know, this has been like 40 something minutes long. 
but we'll talk about just relationships um talk about some scenarios what it's been like being single almost married married and um, relationship issues and all that kind of stuff um this was fun talking to you guys surrounded by talented people um thank you're you. very privileged you're welcome you come any final words <laughs> just thank you for having me yeah it's been fun the first time in Oklahoma, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very nice. He likes it. So for all of you this in Oklahoma, I think it is one boondocks. It's quite diff it's very difficult. This is the place to be guys. Come here. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's okay, Oklahoma. Alright guys, well <laughs> this has been the show. Don't forget to subscribe, share and um, the next time we're gonna be talking about, you know, just relationships and their perspective as men. Why are, why some of my friends that are single, like why are men, why are good men hard to find? and all that kind of, you know, fancy stuff. So check out this um, conclusion, concluding episode. And I'm your host, Masibo. Tito out. Peace out. <laughs> all right, that was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morosible Podcast. Well, guess what? There's plenty more where that came from. So visit our website at www.mosibyl.com. That is www.mosibyl.com, where you can find hours of other binge-worthy episodes just like this one. And while you're at it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Podbean as it encourages other awesome people like you to listen to the podcast as well. We are now officially on Podbean. It has an app. You can catch up on missed episodes and also get a notification when we have new episodes. Do you have a question for our guest, feedback on the episode, or a suggestion for a future guest? Then please get in touch with us by sending us an email at talktomore@mosible.com or connect with us via Instagram at the Morosible Podcast. Cannot wait to hear from you and thank you so much for always listening.